Picking up where we left off at the end of episode 3, let's revisit Chillingham Castle, a place of torture, suffering, murder and betrayal. In our previous visit on the podcast, I conducted an investigation in 2005, which concluded with one of the most convincing happenings I've ever witnessed in all my years of ghost hunting. In this, the first ever Patreon bonus episode, we pick up a decade later, when in 2015 I head north and return to Chillingham, accompanied by an all-new team, in high hopes for what will be lying in wait for us when we enter this 800-year-old fortress, and once again challenge the spirits to prove their existence to us. Tonight, join me for a very special episode as we reinvestigate Chillingham Castle, one of the scariest places on earth. Welcome to the first Patreon bonus episode of How Haunted. How Haunted is a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as I take you along on a paranormal investigation at one of the most haunted locations in the world. I'll explain in detail every aspect of the ghost hunt, and once the investigation gets underway, you'll hear audio from the investigation as it happened. You'll be part of the team as you join us for what is guaranteed to be one hell of a night. Tonight, let's return to Chillingham Castle and ask the question, how haunted? Listener discretion is advised, as this episode features real audio from an actual paranormal investigation where anything could happen. Listen on, if you dare. The date is the 10th of January 2015, and 10 years have passed since our first investigation at Chillingham Castle. And a lot has happened since then. I saw my first book, Ghostly Northumberland, published in 2008, and in 2013 and 14, I had Ghosts of York and then Ghosts of Edinburgh published. These two books saw me investigate some of the frightening locations believed to be the most active in these two cities, themselves having a reputation as having ghosts and ghouls at every turn. To do this, I needed to put together a team to help me investigate. The three men I recruited for the job were my younger brother Tom, and my good friends Richard Stogo and John Crozier. These are three men you're going to get to know very well, as future Patreon episodes of this nature are released. For tonight's investigation we were joined by a brand new recruit in the lanky shape of Gary Harvey, or Harvey as he prefers to be known. Harvey had been invited to the team by me to replace Rich who had decided to call time on his ghost hunting career, as he'd recently became a dad and would simply not have the luxury of free time to be able to come out playing Ghostbusters with us anymore. He'd initially said Jedburgh Castle Jail, which we'd investigated in the summer of the previous year, would be his last. However, The lure of Chillingham Castle was just too much, 
so he quickly did a U-turn and committed to join us for one last foray into the darkness. This would be Harvey's first ever paranormal investigation with us, but he had mentioned that he'd done one before at the Schooner Hotel elsewhere in Northumberland, but that was completely uneventful. Chillingham was the big one, and by his own admission he was bricking it. For the benefit of those listening outside the UK, someone bricking it couldn't be much more afraid. He'd never met the other guys before, so he planned to leave a little bit earlier than needed to give us chance to sit down somewhere en route to Chillingham Castle, have a quiet drink, and get Harvey acquainted with the rest of the guys. The Christmas period had been and gone, and the new year sees us heading north to the paranormal mecca of the northeast, the infamous Chillingham Castle. This particular investigation had been booked for the best part of a year, and we were all counting down the months, then weeks, then days until it came around. It was going to be a long night, that was for sure, and I'd not managed to sleep for a couple of days leading up to the big night, not due to fear and or excitement of what lay ahead, but because of the wild weather that had battered Britain since the Thursday. A winter weather system eerily named Egon had brought a storm which had seen winds of over 70 miles an hour hit the northeast. Friday morning at 4am, I'd been stood in my bedroom window due to the sound of wheelie bins blown around in the road and the tinkling sound of glass bottles blown at speed down the street. I could see most people's lights in the street were on, and many of my neighbours were out picking up their bins and chasing litter along the road clad in PJs, dressing gowns and slippers. Friday night had seen the winds return to another sleepless night, and Saturday daytime had brought heavy rain which gave away to flurries of snow. I'd hoped the weather would die down for our investigation as the wind whistling through the ancient castle would make it far more difficult than normal to pick out audible anomalies. Saturday afternoon I'd sat down for an hour to sort through my ghost hunting gear in readiness for the evening ahead, putting cameras and two-way radios on charge and checking and changing batteries. I took my time checking each piece of kit thoroughly, checking for full battery chargers and making sure the SD card in my camera had plenty of space. This was a routine I'd done so regularly, I didn't have to think too much about what I was doing, akin to an army sniper who's endured the horrors of war being able to strip down and reassemble a rifle blindfold. By 2015 I'd amassed a huge amount of fancy ghost hunting gadgets, however, we would almost completely forego them tonight as Graham, our host for this evening at the castle, runs the ghost walks and supports all the investigations there, so is possibly more experienced than anyone at witnessing firsthand what lies in wait at Chillingham after dark. He told me during a phone conversation in the run-up to tonight that, in his opinion, the best results he's seen have been with those who haven't been using equipment other than the bare minimum and getting back to basics, relying on our senses. Chillingham Castle was the location that had gotten me hooked on paranormal investigations, and as you'll have already heard, way back in 2005 when I conducted my first investigation there, it produced the most compelling evidence for the evidence of ghosts from any of my adventures into the paranormal. I've been back during the day on a number of occasions since, but the idea of once more walking through that ancient doorway, with absolutely no idea what lies in wait for us, was a tantalising and potentially worrying proposition. At this point in time, Chillingham Castle were only allowing two private investigations each year, as they run their own that you can pay to join. As you can imagine, these two slots would be in high demand, but luckily for us, I persuaded them to allow us to take one of these two slots. The other would be an investigation the following month, 
It was 8.30pm and we were on the road. We were heading north in a bitterly cold winter's night, knowing that in less than two short hours we'd be crossing the threshold into one of the world's most haunted, most feared locations. Tom was at the wheel, John was in the passenger seat, and I was sandwiched in the back between Harvey and Rich. The roads were quiet and we made good progress north on the A1, the main road we'd follow from Newcastle up on Tyne right into Northumberland. I linked my phone to Tom's car radio through Bluetooth and played us some music, but there were lots of excited chatter, making the tunes almost redundant. Tom, perhaps thinking of moving his seat forward to give Rich more legroom, shouted back, Rich, have you got enough room back there? Rich answered back, Fruit, yeah I've got two bananas. He reached into his carrier bag and held them up in the air to prove it. Tom glanced in his rearview mirror and just nodded. We passed Morbeth and the night turned misty. The temperature on the dashboard flashed one degree. I was telling Harvey of our past adventures, although he'd heard many of them from me before. The time was flying by, as were the miles of road, and we spotted the Hogshead Inn just off the A1 near Annick. We decided this would be a good place to stop for a drink en route to the castle for the main event, so we pulled over. It was warm and welcoming, and fairly quiet for a Saturday night. We picked a couple of tables in the corner and ordered some drinks. Harvey, John and I had a soft drink, and Rich and Tom had a coffee to warm themselves up. We were glad to be inside the warmth of the pub as it was a bitterly cold night outside and we talked about the fact that it was just going to get colder as the night drew on. Harvey was complaining he was cold, but he was already wearing all of his cold weather gear. His woolly hat, scarf and gloves had been on since he turned up at mine earlier in the evening. John mentioned that he'd brought hand warmers and he had a flask of bovril with him. We caught up over drinks, discussing Christmas and the new year as it was the first time I'd seen any of them other than Tom, my brother, so far this year. Just before 10pm we were back on the road towards our ultimate destination, Chillingham Castle. It had been a long time coming and now we only had 30 more minutes to wait. Shortly we left the well-lit A1 and we followed a narrow, winding, dark country lane that leads to the castle. Thankfully the mist we'd driven through earlier had cleared. We neared the gate of the castle, but just before we reached it we had to stop. There was a man stood in the middle of the road right in front of us. He flagged us over to the side of the road. There were definite horror film vibes, but there were five of us and he gave us a big friendly smile and a wave, so I wasn't too concerned as Tom wound down his window to find out what was going on. He'd been waiting to let us know that there were fire engines in front of the castle, so to go to the castle's main gate instead. Okay, thank you, we said then wound the window back up. We looked at one another and said, fire engines? In hindsight, we should have just asked the smiley guy, but we'd find out soon enough what was going on. We entered the dark main entrance and moved slowly down the gravel track known as the Devil's Walk. Ahead, we could see flashing blue lights and the castle was lit up like Blackpool illuminations. There were six fire engines and dozens of men in uniform running backwards and forwards from their vehicles to the castle. We pulled over to the side of the road and the five of us climbed out of the car, stretched our legs and everyone except Harvey, who was already wearing all of his gear, quickly scrabbled around to the booth for our coats, hats and gloves. We approached the castle, passing the fire engines and dodging the firemen running backwards and forwards and we climbed the short but impressive staircase into the formidable, intimidating fortress. 
that didn't seem quite as formidable or intimidating tonight due to whatever was going on. I found Graham, who I had arranged tonight with, inside an office just inside the castle entrance and I introduced myself. There was a lady sitting with him wearing a jumper that said Chillingham Castle Uncovered on the front of it. She introduced herself as Jill. The rest of the team introduced themselves and Graham brought us up to speed with what was happening. A fire had been lit in one of the fireplaces to ward off the cold and the chimney had caught fire. The good news that the fire was out and there was no damage to the castle, but the bad news was that there was thick smoke and soot everywhere, so whether we could actually conduct our investigation or not was still up in the air. We shot concerned looks at one another and Graham headed back out to see if he could get any more answers. We settled into the wait, at least we were a little warmer here. 45 minutes later, at around 11.15pm, the verdict was in from the fire brigade. Let's hunt. Graham and Jill led the way as we left the little office and crossed the courtyard into the room used as a cafe during the day. There was an acrid smoky smell that hit me like a sledgehammer. The room has two enormous fireplaces and there was soot all over the floor. Firemen chatted to Graham and Jill as we dropped our bags at a table in the corner and we took a seat. I looked around. It had been a couple of years since I'd last been to Chillingham Castle. I spotted a couple of Christmas decorations above the burnt, charred, sooty fireplace. The 6th of January had long since been and gone, and I wondered to myself if these forgotten decorations had perhaps been the cause of the bad luck which had befallen Chillingham. The firemen left and it was now time for our night to really begin. First Graham and Jill would give us a tour and tell us of some of the things that they'd experienced firsthand on the regular ghost walks and ghost hunts they host for mostly enthusiastic first-time ghost hunters lured by Chillingham's reputation. Before we'd even left the cafe, Graham hit us with a comment that would put the fear of God into the most hardened of ghost hunters. The thing we see most often is people just passing out. One second totally fine, the next. One night we had 26 people here and 12 of them passed out. We made our way up the narrow stone staircase to the Minstrels Gallery, the balcony which overlooks the cafe we were using as a base. Graham continued as we walked. You'll have heard of John Sage, the castle torturer. Well, he's been seen stood on this balcony, looking down on visitors. We entered the chapel. Graham commented that despite this being a room of religion, every single stone in this entire building is stained by the blood of those killed here. He continued, when Sir Humphrey Wakefield bought this castle back in 1982, this room was used as a writing room, and it had a false floor. Sir Humphrey knew there was an original stone floor at the same level as the Great Hall, which is the room next door, and wanted everything to be as original as it could be, so he had the false floor removed. And that's when a skeleton of a little girl was found in the rear corner of this room. The remains were carbon dated, and were estimated to be between 700 and 800 years old. He continued, there's some remodeling being done to this room, and since this began it's all kicked off in here big style. He showed us where the window shutters were, and explained that Sir Humphrey has been told that there's a medieval window to be found in this room, hidden behind more modern parts of the structure, and nobody has seen it since the 14th century. He showed us an area of the room boarded off, where the floor's been dug up. When it was dug up, hundreds of human bones were found. Nobody has any idea who they are or why they're there. As we moved from the chapel into the Great Hall, 
I pointed out the curtain to Harvey, John and Rich that moved back in 2005. The Great Hall is a large room with windows on both sides, one side overlooking the garden and the other side overlooking the courtyard. The room is dominated by a huge banqueting table in the middle, surrounded by objects from all over the world. A mannequin of a soldier rides an elephant covered in actual elephant armour. Weapons hang from the wall. Real weapons that have really killed people in conflicts the world over. On the wall furthest from the chapel, an enormous tapestry hangs. I breathed in. The smoke hung thick in the air here, and you could taste it with every breath. This room hasn't really changed much since the 16th century, Graham told us, and at one stage it was actually used as a courtroom, and people were sentenced to death right where you stood. It's an incredibly active room, and it can get a little bit nasty in here. He continued by saying, There's a link to witchcraft in this room. As three witches were sentenced to death for witchcraft here. They were stripped naked, and they were nailed to trees out in the woods to die. We've had people come here on ghost hunts and ghost walks, who've been witches. On one instance, a woman was here on an investigation, and this woman said, Come on, I've been a practising witch for five years. She hadn't even finished her sentence when one of these cups made of bone was rammed into the side of her head. Her face was marked and everything, there was such commotion. The very next night, a guy had heard about it and he started mouthing off saying he was a witch too. At this point he was dragged from his chair and pinned to the floor. It turns out he was actually a witch. He had a ring bearing a witch's symbol and he'd been practising witchcraft for two years. Another woman here was dragged off her chair and thrown against the fireplace. This particular woman had a witch-related tattoo that she hadn't told us about before this incident. Graham approached the table. It's an incredibly heavy table. I mean, it's huge. He told us, this table has lifted five or six inches from the floor and then just dropped. Bang! Everyone running away. There was a girl here once who'd been pulled off a chair. She got up and she sat back on the chair and then immediately something pulled her ponytail so hard that her head was bleeding. He had more tales to tell. We've had John Sage in here, we've seen Lady Mary in here, and we've seen women and children. A lot of stuff happens in this room. Rich asked if there was an anti-Scottish feeling in the castle, given the castle's purpose going back in history. Graham answered, no, no, not at all. Scottish people often feel really peaceful in here. The main thing seems to be the attitude of those coming here. Jill added, We've heard an awful lot of footsteps walking around in this room, and we've heard growling in here too. As Jill and Graham continued to regale us with tales, I surveyed the faces of my friends. Other than Harvey, the other four of us have been together on many investigations at many locations, and a lot of them have a reputation just as fearsome as Chillingham. Despite this, there were some genuinely concerned looks on their faces, and understandably so given what we've been told so far. This wasn't helped when Graham said, next up, the King Edward room. This is where the really bad stuff happens. We entered the King Edward room in the oldest tower in the castle. In here, Graham began as we all looked around the room in the darkness, one of the most common things is these benches flipping over entirely when nobody is in the room. 
We come in here and they've turned completely over. I shone my torch on the two benches so he knew what to look out for later on. Jill regularly has somebody calling her name from within the darkness. We don't know who it is, but they only ever say Jill's name. Jill agreed and then added, and there's regularly a horrible smell in here that appears as if out of nowhere, then disappears. Graham continued, one night in this very room, there was a big guy on an investigation. He was a policeman who teaches martial arts. We were in here when suddenly we all saw him get pushed forward, then immediately pushed back. He felt something very strong had hit him in the chest and then in the back straight away. When we checked under his clothes, he had an enormous bruise on his chest and a big cut across his back. He continued, On another occasion there was a themed vigil here and two Scottish lads came as William Wallace. They dared the spirits here saying, come and have a go at us. At that very moment a weapon fell from the wall and struck one of them across the head. Oh, on another occasion we were all sat in the darkness asking out when suddenly somebody screamed, like they were screaming for their life, and they ran out of the room and downstairs. When we caught up with them and asked what had happened, they said they'd been sat on a stool when they'd felt hands around their leg trying to drag them off the stool. A sceptical guy said, can I go and sit on that stool? And we said, yeah, sure, go for it. No sooner had we restarted that he was screaming for help as well. He told us that unseen hands had grabbed him from behind and was trying to drag him off his seat, almost pulling his coat off. When he took his coat off, his back was covered in scratches that looked like claw marks. Rich commented on how the temperature had plummeted suddenly. We'd been in the room about five minutes and everybody had noticed that it was noticeably colder now than when we'd entered the room. Graham asked, have you heard about the possessions here? Nobody had, not even me, and I make it my business to research what's been reported to places such as this, especially places with a reputation like Chillingham Castle. He told us, there was a girl here from Yorkshire she had a really broad Yorkshire accent, but in an instant she suddenly started talking in a Scottish accent and then she started trying to bite, kick and claw people. She demanded everybody to get out of this room and no one needed asking twice. When she snapped out of it, she didn't remember any of what had happened to her. On another time we were in the chapel and a young lad was sat in the corner where the young girl's skeleton had been found. The lights were out, we were in total darkness and all of a sudden there was a big commotion. I turned a torch on, just in time to see the guy diving at me, saying I'm going to slit your effing throat. Jill told us, we get people feeling that dogs are around in here. We hear sniffing, or we get the feeling that a dog has just rested against their leg. Graham added, John Sage had a dog, and he used to feed the dog meat from the prisoners he killed in the torture chamber, or those lying dead at the bottom of the oubliette. As Graham's talking, Rich commented that he heard a gruff laugh. Everybody seemed on edge, eyes looking around the room constantly. This nervousness manifested itself in Rich when he asked, So can they hurt you? We already knew the answer to this based on the tales that we'd heard so far. But still, everybody looked at Graham hopefully, seeking reassurance. When Graham eventually answered, we got none, as he just nodded almost apologetically. We spent more than enough time in the King Edward room, but the next room would be no more pleasant 
as we made our way down to the torture chamber. As we walked down the narrow spiral staircase, the same one John Sage had walked up to hack those children to pieces in the room we'd just been in, Rich asked me, are you getting anything? I said I'd definitely noticed the temperature drop just before he'd mentioned it. I asked him what he thought of the castle, and he said, oh, it's absolutely incredible. I asked if he was glad that he'd delayed his retirement to come along for one last ghost hunt with us. And he said, yeah, it's terrifying here. Fuff, I heard Harvey say as we stepped foot inside the torture chamber. A room full of devices used to torture, maim and kill people. A truly horrible place. Graham pointed some of these devices out to us, showing us what they would have been used for. There was a wheel used for breaking prisoners' backs, cages that people would have been placed inside, unable to stand up straight, and if they ever got out, they'd never stand up straight again. A rack used to stretch people, and an iron maiden. There was devices for gouging out eyes, ripping out tongues, even a spike, maybe ten feet tall, that the victim would have had their anus lowered onto, and gravity would do the rest. As Graham brought this horrible run down to an end, Harvey and Rich both muttered under their breath about just how they felt about this particular room. You need to remember that all of these devices have actually been used on people. It's certainly a sobering thought. With this, our initial tour was drawn to an end and we returned to base. Even though the fire can't be lit for obvious reasons, it was far warmer in here than any of the other rooms we'd been in. We grab a drink and reflect on what we'd seen and heard so far. Harvey told us of something that had happened to him before we'd even began the tour, which he'd not mentioned at the time. I didn't say anything because it was really early on. Right. And I didn't want to get, like, we were straight away in front of these, but I don't know, just because of the, like, sort of everything in here, but when I sat down there, I felt ill. Like, I wanted to pass out. We finished our drinks, and with good luck from Graham and Jill, it was time for our investigation to begin. But then... The audio wasn't great there because we were just about to begin our investigation, but fortunately I was recording. What you heard was the unmistakable sound of a door slam, very close to where we were. Jill commented that she thought it was the wind, but Graham dismissed this saying it couldn't have been. With this promising start we headed for the chapel. The five of us spread out around the room and we each took a seat. I took some photos. I took three photos in quick succession and noticed something on the third. Oh, hang on. What? Right. Right, spot the problem. Right. Wow. Let's see. You can't see your breath, but not that much. I don't know if it is my breath. Shall I try and do it again? Yeah. I've just blown my breath while taking a photo, and uh, that's what came out. Wow. So. Is it not because my torch was... No, no, because I was stood over here. I don't think the fire's got anything to do with it. Why would the fire? It looks like, it looks like smoke. There are, well, it is smoke, isn't it? Smoke particles in the air. Well, not that bad. Not from going from that to that to that mm. in the space of, like, taking photos every second. Yeah. Do you think the smoke particles in the air to make that happen? 
Okay. Show us. Go left and right, show them the, the before and after photos. Because I was just taking them, like, a second apart, do you see what I mean? It was 12.30am. We turned all of our torches off. The only light remaining in the room was one single candle. John called out. We are speaking to the ghosts of Chillingham Castle. We come with complete respect. Can you give us some kind of a sign you are with us? He then asked a series of questions in the hopes of answers either in the form of something happening right there and then for us to hear, see, smell or feel, or possibly something that we would capture on the audio recording that I was making and the photos that we were taking sporadically. He asked questions such as, What is your name? How many spirits are here with us now? He asked, Can you put the candle out? The candle flickered. No one spoke but we all wondered. Go on, I join in. Put the candle out. It flickered again. We debated as to whether it was flickering prior to John asking the question in the first place, and we weren't really sure one way or another. John continues to ask. Move the curtain. Rattle the window shutters. Nothing. I'm watching the candle. It's been perfectly still since those initial flickers. However... We were in a drafty old castle, in the middle of the night, in the winter, in northeast England. It was probably nothing. Probably. I ask out. I want something conclusive. Something where there would be no debate. Can you touch one of us? Prove you're here. Push us. Affect us in some way. Nothing. John asked how everyone was feeling. He said that he felt really peaceful. I mentioned that I had a headache earlier, but it's cleared up now, and I add that it was probably down to the smoke. After a fairly short ten minutes, we decide to move on to the Great Hall, knowing that we would return to the chapel later. When we enter the Great Hall, I immediately notice that there's a very different atmosphere in here. We all spread out around the huge table. John was sat way off from the rest of us, on the seat nearest the chapel entrance. Freezing in here. It's colder in here than it was in the other room, isn't it? Even in my pockets, it's cold. <laughs> they put my hands in the fridge. It's a bit dark now, isn't it? With John being sat so far away from the rest of us, I ask him how he's feeling. Then I ask him about the strange light that I can see close to him. After some investigating, we identify that it's from the candle in the chapel, the light coming through the doorway. We also look to ensure that we can account for any other light that we happen to see. However, it's really dark so we can't actually work out where the windows are in the room without putting a torch on. Rich had been preparing to call out. The reason we suggested Rich should is that ever since our first investigation at the National Railway Museum in York, over four years earlier, Rich seems to pick up on things that nobody else does, and spirits seem to respond to him in a way that they don't respond to the rest of us. However, on this occasion he says that he isn't comfortable asking out. He says it's the castle, but he can't put his finger on why he can't bring himself to do it. Tom asks aloud for some kind of sign that we're not alone. We all wait, anticipating. After all of the stories we'd heard earlier, I felt like something had happened at any second, although just what that something would be was cause for concern. Harvey said that he thinks the thing in front of him is moving. 
he thinks. He shines a torch on it and it's a drinking horn. He says it could just be his eyes adjusting to the darkness, combined with his imagination, but wanting to keep an eye on, as maybe it wasn't his imagination after all. Tom continues to ask for anyone with us to prove it. To touch one of us. Move something. Make a noise. John says he heard a sound. He says it sounds like an insect chirruping behind him, between where he sat and where I'm sat. As we listen, he says he heard it again and it sounded like it was behind me. I had the hood pulled up on my coat, so I took it off to give me a better chance of hearing just what he's hearing. Tom asks me if I can hear it and I say no, but I do explain that just before John had spoke, I did have a feeling that something or someone was behind me. I was almost expecting that someone could pull me off my chair at any minute. Tom asks for anything there to do something to me. I speak up, adding, yes, do something to me, prove that you're here with us, show me what you can do. We wait, but nothing happens. John continues to hear the noise. It's constant, which makes him think maybe it's a bat or a nesting bird. Rich whispers, what was that? I heard it too. It was the sound of a door closing somewhere nearby, but we can't pinpoint what direction it was coming from. With the location of Jill and Graham unknown to us, we can't afford to dwell on it, and we continue to try and coax out the spirits that may be there with us, asking them to show themselves to us. It was just something like a shadowy thing. Did he hear something or see something? See something? Like a shadow? Oh, Oh, that's what you said. This was incredible. A black, shadowy figure had been seen moving around the room by not only Harvey, but Tom had seen it as well, and they'd both said that they'd seen exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. Everyone was excited by this development, and Rich asked out, getting results immediately. Would you like to talk to me? Do you want to sit next to me, talk to me? What's that? Can you do that again? Rich continues to ask out, but the room is silent and still. There's a loud knock in response to nothing. It came from somewhere within the room. Tom asked if we'd all heard it, and we did, but we can't pinpoint exactly where it came from. I say, can you do that again? Nothing. Can you move one of the objects on the table, I plead? Nothing. John comments that he can still hear that constant sound. Tom goes to sit next to him to validate that he can hear it too, and he can, meaning it must be something natural. After 20 minutes in the room, I suddenly come over all dizzy, however, I say nothing for now. Harvey asks out for the first time tonight, asking for anybody with us to give us a sign. There's a bang from the table. That was Rob, Harvey says matter-of-factly. It wasn't me. He assumed I'd knocked something over, but I'd not touched a thing. I wasn't even touching the table. However, he was right that the sound did seem to come from very close to me, that was for sure. Harvey asked for whoever was with us to do it again. Nothing. I ask if anybody can hear a constant whisper, or suggest maybe it's the wind blowing through the castle, as it's clear that the weather outside has taken a turn for the worse. We can all hear it, but we can't quite place what it is. Without us even discussing it, I can tell that we all feel as though something is going to happen. We're tantalisingly close. But as much as we plead for more, it just doesn't come. Until. There's a series of loud bangs from the chapel. 
My eyes have adjusted completely to the darkness, and I don't even need to ask if anybody else heard it, as everybody looks at one another. Go check the chapel out John, there's someone there, I say eagerly. Time is of the essence, and he's right next to the entrance. What? Why me? He protests in response. Rich takes the initiative and races to the chapel. John joins him. They return a few minutes later. There's no one there, and they can't see anything obvious that's moved since we'd been in there around 30 minutes earlier. I ask out. If you made that noise, can you do it again? There isn't another bang, but there's a cough and a whispering coming from the direction of the chapel. That'll be Jill and Graham, I say. Rich looks right at me. It isn't. They're not in the cafe. I checked over the balcony when I went to the chapel. There's nobody there. But that was clearly talking, I ask. Everyone nods. I volunteer to go and sit in the chapel alone, while the others stay in the Great Hall. The two rooms are close enough that we can clearly hear one another, and if something's happening in the chapel, we need eyes and ears in there to work out what's going on. I try a different approach. Graham had mentioned earlier that the ghosts of Chillingham seem to respond to people's attitudes towards them, so I try being a little more direct in my line of questioning, a little less polite, and I go so far as to suggest that the ghosts here aren't actually capable of doing anything, albeit making a noise, or doing something to one of us. It doesn't work. Silence. It's 1.15am by now, and we know that time is against us, so we all agree to move to the King Edward room, the room where the really bad stuff happens. As we climb the winding staircase, I chat to Harvey to see how he's feeling. He still can't believe that both him and Tom saw a black shadowy figure. I pick up an axe on the way up the staircase. The others stop and look at me. It's believed by some, although there's no actual evidence that this is the very axe that John Sage used to hack all those little children, toddlers, and babies to pieces in the Edward room, I say. Come on, man, mutters Harvey as we resume our climb up the stairs. We're now in the Edward room, where Graham and Jill had told us of some genuinely concerning stories earlier on of actual physical attacks on unsuspecting ghost hunters in this very room on prior investigations. I notice my voice recorder's batteries are dying. They should last 48 hours, and I put two brand new Duracell AA's in before leaving home. Thankfully, I always carry spares, and that's one of the beauties for the ghost hunter of a digital voice recorder that takes batteries, rather than one that needs charging up by USB, as anything that requires batteries suddenly being drained of power is something we've encountered a number of times on our investigation over the years. The other four sat on the two benches that Graham had told us about moving around and flipping over. I sat on the King's throne. You're brave, Rich said, but it was more from necessity as there were no other seats, or at least I couldn't see any others in the dark. It's a bit dark over here. This is the coldest I've been even in the chapel. I don't like it, now the lights are off. No. Tom commented that he thought he could see the chandelier moving above us, or maybe it was just his eyes getting used to the darkness again. We couldn't be sure, so I shone my torch on it. It was hanging perfectly still. It's uh, one of the things in this room is that chandelier in the middle just starts rocking. And that's attached to the beam where uh, somebody was hung from. I don't like it over here. The worst I've felt. John asked me if he can sit on the throne I'm sat on. I'm only too happy to swap with him and I sit next to Rich on one of the benches. Safety in numbers. We all hear a noise 
I said it sounds like a growl. We think it's the wind that has picked up outside. What was that? That I heard. The thump. That came from that corner to your left. If, if you made that sound in that corner of the room, are you able to do something else? Are you able to do something more conclusive? Could you speak to us? Could you make a louder noise? Could you knock something over? All we're looking for is some kind of evidence that you're here. We're not going to run away. We're not going to be scared. We just want to see what you, you're able to do. Feel free to affect one of us in some kind of a way. There's a tapping noise we can all hear. John says he thinks he's heard it a few times now, and he suspects it's probably a bat or something like that. We then hear something else that sounds like it could be talking. I continue to ask out, nothing. Tom asks out, challenging them, asking them to prove their power to us. Nothing. I've got this weird, like, it's probably just paranoia, but I don't know, like, I've got this weird feel, the sensation that I'm being watched from the balcony. Interestingly, both Tom and Harvey have felt exactly the same thing, eyes watching us from the balcony all around the top of the room. John rationalises and says that he thinks it's only natural that people would feel that way given the balconies above us. Tom asks out for something up there to do something. He says, come on, this is meant to be the most haunted place in Northumberland. Do something. Me and Rich both hear a noise right outside the door. We immediately open the door and look outside. There's nobody there. Rich asks out, nothing. Tom says, I can see a pair of eyes looking at me. They're all lit up like a pair of cat's eyes. He looks around at us to see if we can see what he's seen, but nobody has. When he looks back, whatever it was has gone. I comment again on a knock I heard just outside the room. I go to explore, there's nothing there. It was around 1.45 in the morning now. We knew we needed a change of approach, so we agreed to take a short break and consider our options for the time that we've got left. We're also lured by the chance to warm ourselves up as the temperature has dropped below freezing and despite all of our layers of clothes, we're all feeling the cold. We return to the cafe, my eyes hurt in the well-lit room after spending so long in the dark. Graham and Jill are eager to know how we're getting on and we talk them through the last 90 minutes. I show Jill my misty photo from earlier when we were in the chapel. Her immediate suggestion is that it could be breath. I explain that that was our first thought when I tried to recreate it, I couldn't. Graham takes a look and says that he's seen incredibly similar photos, but most often they're taken in the Great Hall. That photo's over on the Instagram at How Haunted Pod for you to look at right now. We were all sat on seats far comfier than the ones we've been sitting on in the chapel, the Great Hall, and the Edward Room. We were sipping on hot drinks, energy drinks, and eating snacks. I noticed Rich wolfed down one of his aforementioned bananas. I had a coffee. Not because I necessarily wanted a cup of coffee, but because I wanted to hold the piping hot mug. We chatted, we gathered our thoughts and we planned our next move. I asked Harvey how he's finding it and he commented that even if you don't believe in ghosts, you'd look at this place and still be convinced that it's haunted. Graham and Jill told us more of the things that they'd witnessed firsthand on previous investigations here. One particular story Graham told us is about a lady who suddenly freaked out, panicked. She climbed over two complete strangers trying to get out of the room that they were in. 
In the darkness, she was about to run full speed into a stone wall before Jill tackled her and stopped her. She then found the door and got the hell out of there. When they asked her what had happened, she explained that she could see a face, right in front of hers, getting slowly closer. A nearby church bell chimed twice for 2am. Our break was over and it was time to get back to the hunt. We knew a change of approach was needed and that change was to invite Graham and Jill to join us for the remainder of our investigation. Next stop, back to the Great Hall. Upon entering the Great Hall, Graham suggested it would be good if someone went and sat at the bottom of the room near the tapestry. Sitting on a stool, as sometimes people sitting here will get thrown off the stool or have other things happen to them. I immediately volunteered to go and sit on the stool and the others positioned themselves around the table John and Rich right at the far end of the room, furthest away from me. I looked around at my new surroundings, very aware that I was in the very spot that Harvey and Tom had saw a black shadowy figure earlier. Those around the table joined hands and touched feet. Graham and Jill surrounded on each side by one of us. I've been at investigations in the past where it's been suggested that holding hands helps energy to flow. However, in this instance it proves a far more practical purpose We don't know Jill and Graham, and they don't know us. So if we can account for everybody's hands and feet, and we hear a sound on or around that old big wooden table, we will be able to say categorically that it wasn't caused by one of us. Graham asks out. If there's any spirit in the Great Hall, could you please come forward and let yourself be known, please? You know me, Graham, been here for a long time now. We've just got a few friends around and uh, we'd just like to get to know you a little bit better, find out exactly what the castle's about. We're talking any spirit, torturer, jailers, candle watchers, maids, anything, the children. We'd just like to come forward and introduce yourself to us as well. We know it's hard sometimes, but it'd be good if you could actually show yourself to us. We've got all the time in the world. You know, when we've always said it, we're not here to judge you. History's history. And the things what you're doing, it's like, we know those people forced to torture people. If you refuse to do that torture, you died of the said same torture, we know that. It'd be good to get used to come through. So you could actually put your point across. Now I know a lot of the times you work through emotion, but somebody talking. Just on the left hand side here. We know that there was a lot of things you were forced to do. John Sage, head torture of Chillingham Castle, you actually portrayed yourself as being a priest. You said it was God's work, what you were doing. Now we know war's war, but the, the extent of what you've done with these kids was far beyond what you should have been doing. I think you know that. 
We know you're in, we'd just like you to come forward a little bit closer. <coughs> you know there's no way can harm there's no way we can harm you. You don't have to be faithful of us at all. There's nothing we can do to you. We're just asking you to come in. And get to know us. That's what we're asking you to do. Now we know this room's big enough for you, John. And you've got the conflict where you still think you rule the roost. And I still say there's a lot of spirit actually in the uh, castle who are still afraid of you. I'd like to speak to the person who actually nailed these witches to trees. It's gone a bit darker there, hasn't it? It's mm -hmm. gone darker. Mm -hmm. Come on, we know you're in, I don't want you to stand in the shadows, I'd like you to come forward as close as you can get. Flashlights in the centre of the table there. Come on, come forward and show yourself. We know you hide. Despite Graham thinking that he'd heard a voice at one point, it seemed very much the same as before. Very, very quiet. I was sat on a little stool all on my own, isolated from everybody else. But I was more than comfortable, for the moment at least. The only thing I was feeling was freezing bloody cold. In fact, no, colder than that. Graham continued, and it began at last. That's all we're asking you to do. There you go, straight to the bottom. I've just seen you come in there. Where's the curtain? Just, just, uh, just in front of the horse, it's just gone across there. Come on. I get a little bit annoyed, John. You do like people taking the limelight? Did you feel that? I know you get a little bit annoyed about it. Can you have behind us? Yeah. It does the table. Come on. Oh yeah, John, we've had all this out with you before. You know me, Graham, and you know the run-ins what we've had. All we tried to do was get to the truth of what actually went on in this castle. Are you ashamed of some of the stuff you've done? Like the table feels like it's ever so slightly going up and down. It's just moved across. I don't know if it's the... No, the table. It's every time we're going with John Sage and stuff like that. It's the table. I don't know if it's a show of power. 
if it's a show of strength, if you can do that with a table, what can you do with us? You know what I mean? That's it's that type of thing. There you go. Who? What the hell was that? Graham had seen a figure enter the room. This was followed by a loud bang on the table. And then Harvey commented that the table seemed to be lifting up and down. Rich confirmed that he could feel this too, but John was a little bit more sceptical, saying that he could feel the table vibrating, but not necessarily lifting up and down. However, it's worth noting that he was furthest away from Harvey, who had mentioned it first. Come on. What I'd like you to do is come, I've seen you, I've just seen your head. I've just seen you disappear back into the exit light. Come forward, what I would like you to do is any of these people around this table, place your hands on the shoulders, let them feel the pressure of you being there. Just as it seemed that whatever seemed to have briefly joined us might have left as quickly as they had arrived, Graham saw something else. Would you like to come forward? Any of you that do, just come forward, just give us a sign. Somebody just pulled me on, no? Come on. See that white wisp just going across the table. Let's go towards the alcove. Come on, I want you to come right up close where we are. Stand behind any of us, sit beside us if you want. What about all them times when you've pulled people off chairs and benches? We've actually got someone sitting at the bottom of the hall. Easy target for you. The easy target Graham was referring to was me. Sat all alone at the bottom of the Great Hall, being pointed out to the ghosts as easy prey for their next victim. However, I knew what I was getting into when I signed up for tonight, and I hoped they were listening to him, and I hoped that they would do something to me. Go down so you can touch his head. Come on. Get all wispy, I don't know if anybody else can say that. It's like wispy lights coming all over. I waited. Nothing. Graham commented on the wispy lights he could see again, but nobody else could see them. John asked me if I would swap seats with him. I didn't want to. I wanted to feel the full force of whatever was here picking me off, the lone target. However, this was John's investigation just as much as it was mine, so we swapped places, and I hoped that he had far more success than I did. Right, now that we've swapped things round again, you can see John at the bottom. And I've told you before, we give you the opportunity to come forward and the amount of times we've put things in the place, we're handed on a plate for you. I know you like moving things and you like banging things, but it's like what we've said, it's not about the fear factor, what we're into. It's communication. So what I would like you to do, if it's John you like sitting down there, go down to where John is, and just touch his head, his shoulders, let him feel the pressure of you leaning against him, sit beside him, whatever. Everything seemed quiet once again, 
too quiet. My stool's moving. <laughs> Instead of my stool, go down to where John is. Come and see if you can see if you can move John's uh, stool. So I know you just stand there and you just kick it. Just see if you can do it to John's stool, please. You getting anything down there, John? No, quite peaceful. Yeah, Laura whispering behind us there. Come on. You know you like to interact now and again. Move something on the table. Come on, you need to give us something. Anything. It's just a wispy light, what I'm getting all the time. Anybody not that table there? No. I felt it, but... Yeah, I felt it. Graham continues to ask aloud. He seems to be getting so much more than anybody else. I wonder if it's because he's the one asking the questions. But before I could dwell on this for much longer. Come on. Anything. Any sign. It's a table again. We appreciate you trying to move the table. I'd prefer it if you try and move a person. No. What, what you getting like, John? Up this side. Yeah. No. Like footsteps. John says that he could hear very definite footsteps slowly approaching him. He asks if it's any of us shuffling our feet, but our feet are all touching one another, so we know for a fact that it's none of us. Come on. If that's you trying to shuffle up the, the Great Hall, John's heard you. Are you coming towards us or are you moving towards John? Don't want you just standing there and hiding and try to work out what were you doing. If you're fed up of us talking and you want us out of here, just do it. That's all you've got to do. It's quiet. Too quiet. Time is slipping away from us and I'm silently pleading for something, anything, inexplicable to happen. We decide to swap things around again and John and Harvey swap places. I'm not going to try and anger you. It's really a peaceful conversation we're looking for. We do know there's other people around the castle as well, not just you. See the red flash there? Why? Just in it's like the centre of the table. So I was like, you're getting a red flash. Come on. You see little bits of red flashes there and flurry of lights, we can see it. Is that an energy building up? Seems to be quite a bit of movement from where the chapel mm-hmm. is. By the what? Where the chapel light's coming from. Aye. 
This wasn't heard by anybody at the time, but is this a dog bark, followed by another quieter dog bark a few seconds later? I'll play it again. Listen carefully. There were no dogs in the castle that night, and nobody on the recording reacts to it at the time. I've listened to this maybe a dozen times, and having dogs myself, I'm almost certain in what I hear. But I'll let you decide for yourself, and I'd love you to get in touch with us to let me know what you hear. With Harvey and John swap places, and everybody else around the table touching hands and feet, we continue. Table's moving. The cup's on the table. You've just been throwing the cups about in the ghost tower. What's the matter with you now? What's that? that? Something just on this side. I heard some talking from over there. It was like warm breath on the ear. I check the time and it's just after 2.30 in the morning. We have around 90 minutes left and I'm beginning to think to myself that no matter how much we ask out, it just wasn't going to be our night. I kept these thoughts to myself, despite thinking that the others were probably having similar thoughts of their own. If there's anyone here, please come forward, come and join us, give us a sign, let us know you're there. We want to know what this castle's about, we want to know about you. Prove how powerful you are. That's you moving the table, thank you. Come forward, do it again. Throw something off the table. How powerful are you? When Tom asked out, he got two loud bangs, one after the other. Graham joined in trying to coax whoever or whatever seemed to be with us to do more. Graham asked the question, is there something that you don't like here? Nothing. Then Jill asked, is there someone in the group who you don't like? That question's met with a bang. Is there something you don't like? Is there someone in the group you don't like? Hmm. Is there someone here you don't like? Is it me? Come on, you need to come and answer us, please. Are you a bit annoyed with us? Because of the fire? Come on, you start talking now. Are you annoyed with us? Keep going. Are you annoyed with us because of the fire? There's breathing right in me. Or is it just... And it's you, saying you yes. Just, is it... I'm sorry, I do apologise. It was an accident. Are you, are, you, are you male? Is it John? Could you try and tap it on is. the top of the table? Just, just tap again. Does he... So incredibly, Jill asks out, and we get a single bang in response to a series of questions, the bang always coming immediately after the question. Were we really communicating with a spirit? A spirit who's angry with Jill for setting fire to their castle. And a spirit who claims to be no other than John Sage. Harvey and Rich swap seats, 
and this seems to be the catalyst for what's to follow. Richard's sitting down the bottom now. Was it you? No. There's the right person down there for you now. We want to know why you're so quiet tonight. Is it somebody in the group that you don't like? Give us a definite answer. Is there someone in the group you don't like? That's, 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 that's the bench uh, beside us. The bench. Was it your side? That's not our end? bench, it's the one beside us. Sounds like it's here, bro. Yeah, it's on next to them, I think. Yeah, I think Gary just down there. It wasn't our bench, was it? No, it definitely come from the left, like yeah. on our side. Pick on John. Is this John? Give us a definite answer. Is this John? Oh. What's the Is that you? What's the What? This, like, the stool, like, blocked. What, this owl bench? Uh, it could be you with your shaking. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to warm us up. It's like sitting on the washing machine. <laughs> Come on, John, give That's us a I definite answer. I want to know if it's you. I'm sitting in Graham's seat now, and I'm telling you, I want to know if it's you. We want to know why you're so quiet tonight. You've stopped shaking now. I'm, trying, I'm focusing on not shaking so I can feel everything. <laughs> Is that somebody Is that your bad? hands? No. Did anybody else touch anything there? No, sure. Well, have you all got all the hands? Oh, I've all got all the hands. Are you moving stuff on the table now? Is this John? Or is this one of John's men? Do you not like it when a woman's talking to you? Don't like it, do you? Mm. I think you're getting a bit confused because I'm sitting in Graham's seat where he normally sits. Come on, John. Come round the side of the table. Blow one of the lads' faces. Let them know that you're here. It's on the table. It's the centre of the table. It's like in front of it. Like in the middle of all. Is it the, pl- is it the plate you're lifting? I think it's right bang in the centre of all of us there, like... Is it a plate? Mentioned something about Richie at the bottom. Is Richard in the right place? Oh. That's actually your Did you feel that in our ah. hand there? Do you not like Richard? That's moving. It is. Where's them... Uh, there's not an axe up here, is there? No, I think it's a bit further it's down. It's further down, isn't it? No, it's the axe what was moving before like that, wasn't it? Does he remind you of somebody? Somebody you don't like? Is it somebody you don't like? Why don't you go down to Richard? Will you go down to Richard? Are you frightened of Richard? Is that a yes? Are you frightened of Richard? He's good at the martial art as well. Is he? What's well, he going to you know, fight us? Mm-hmm. Is, that because, is that true? He does martial arts? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What does he do, Richard? Taekwondo, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, It's funny because we had a cage fighter in here. And, and it was exactly um, the same, wasn't it? Exactly the same. Anything to do with fighting. Is that, is that the connection? Because he's... Is it? Oh. I think what it is, it's, you know, like a modern warrior. Mm-hmm. See, we class them as like a modern warrior fighter, stuff like that. I think it's some 
there's some connection somewhere in the castle because like as I say with a cage fighter mm -hmm. he was actually out for the count wasn't he mm -hmm. and we had to literally carry him out and he was so angry and frustrated when he come round a bit he says all the fights he's ever had he says he's never been knocked out by something he couldn't see <laughs> so I think I, I, I said just before Richard went down there I says I'm sure it's you mm -hmm. can you go down towards Richard Will you go down, please? Will you let him know that you're there? Go down towards him, kick his stool, touch him, blow on his face, let him know that you're down there. I don't think he wants to go down. I don't think this is John. I don't. Could we try and establish who you are? I think you're female. Well, he said they were male before, so I think it's just somebody messing about. This is amazing. Our patience has paid off incredibly so. Rich moving to the stool at the bottom of the room seems to have finally got whoever's there communicating with us. You'll have clearly heard loud bangs from the table, metal plates being clattered around, all seemingly in response to direct questioning. We don't know who it is we're communicating with, but it seems that it isn't actually John Sage. They say that they're a female. The questioning and the answers continue. Come on. Now what's the connection? Is it because if he's a, a martial artist, he's a fighter? Or does he actually look like someone? He looks like someone. Scottish person? English person? Somebody from the castle. Did he live in the castle? Is he not one of John's men, he looks like? I think they're just saying over. Mm -hmm. I think you're just messing about, aren't you? So the answers just keep on coming. But then it appears that they're just answering yes to anything we ask. Either this is a playful spirit or one looking to intentionally mislead us for some reason. I suggest perhaps Rich should ask some questions, since whoever is there seems most interested in him. The audio you're going to hear is really quiet at first, but he explains that he has Scottish and English heritage. Could this have anything to do with his Scottish blood? He gets an answer. Is it worth Rich asking? Of course I. Do you want to ask something, Richard? Yes. That was a big enough. Keep going, Richard. The, the torture of the Scots was that for we looking for somebody or something. Something.
slight, slight movement. Was it power? Wisdom? It's, it's, it's so much movement. Control. That's actually in my hand now. It seems that the spirits here have some kind of interest in Rich. And something on the table has moved so much that it's now touching Graham's hand. We turn on the lights to find out what it is, and it's a metal plate. We move all of the metal items into the centre of the table to give the spirits plenty of objects to move. Suddenly everything just stops. We were getting responses to every single question, as the question was asked. But now nothing. I check the time, and at exactly the same time I hear three chimes from the church bell. It's 3am, and we've spent an hour in the Great Hall. That's like tapping. Hmm. Is there anybody's feet? No. no. That you're walking down to see Richard? It sounds like walking that way, doesn't it? You're gonna go and walk and see Richard? You're no longer afraid of him? We hear what sounds like footsteps, but after a few seconds it stops. We ask aloud for another 10 minutes, each taking turns to try and persuade whoever was with us to return, but it's silent. We're all freezing and Harvey is visibly shivering. But we don't have time for another break as we have less than an hour of our investigation left. To make the most of the time we agree to split up into two teams. Tom, Rich, John, Jill and Graham will go to the torture chamber, while Harvey and I will go to the oubliette. The oubliette is a tiny little dungeon. So much so that Harvey is far too tall for the room when he stood up. So the pair of us settle down as best we can in the cramped room. Harvey's made himself comfortable sitting on a wooden box, and I've chose to stand. I peer down the grate of the floor, my torchlight bouncing off the bones of the skeletal little girl staring back up at me from 20 feet below where I'm stood. I feel a chill pass through me. Perhaps it's the thought of what that 12-year-old must have felt when she was imprisoned here, only too aware she'll never see the light of day again, then having her arms and legs broken and being thrown down the pit to suffer a long, slow death. Or could it be the bitterly cold air being blasted up through the grid into the room in which we're in? Possibly a bit of both. We had ten minutes in here, and now that we're settled, you will hear the remainder of our time in the oubliette in its entirety. Well, no, because like, that's real, somebody was here. Yeah, yeah, and then the arms and legs were broken, and then they were thrown down this pit. They make me feel so much better about it. And it was typically the children who weren't worth torturing, but they didn't want them to just let them go because then they'd be like William Wallace and Braveheart and they'd come back when they're old enough to avenge the parents' death. Right, so. Turn your torch off and we'll, uh, we'll do some asking out and we'll ask for something to touch you. Should we sit down on that? You can sit down on that, mate. I'll just stand in this little corner. You sit yourself down. 
That's coming because there's a door down there and to the right. There's a door with holes in the door where they used to take the bodies out. Right. Shadows just moved past that door out there. No, it never. I'm sure it did. Right, we'll dismiss that as my imagination for the time being. Feel that horrible draft that's just picked up. Uh, right, spirits of Cheltenham Castle. Um, we're here in the dungeon where so many children lost their lives. And we're looking for some kind of a sign that there's somebody here with us now. You don't need to be afraid of us. We can't cause you any harm, and we don't want to cause you any harm. We're just here to, to find some kind of proof that you exist. I know that a lot of suffering and horrible things happen to you, but nobody can hurt you now, and it would be great if you could just give us some kind of a sign that you're here. My friend Gary, who sat on a box in the room, um, if you could maybe touch him, or if you could touch me, or pull on our clothes or speak to us, show yourself in some form, give us some kind of a clue that you're here. We've come a long way, total respect, we're not here to do anything to you, we couldn't even if we wanted to, but that's certainly not what we want to do. Can you make some kind of a sound? Could you show yourself in some some way? Anything else other than cold? Um, it's hard to say, like, because. I'm about to take your photo, mind. You probably got to shut your eyes, otherwise, you're going to get blinded. Well. Sounded like a noise, like a voice or something out there. It might have been the camera shutting itself off. What was that? Was that you moving on that box, you think? No, if I move on this box. Oh, it was that kind of a noise. Ah. That's alright. As long as I know what it is, I don't mind. Hear that? What? That dump. I heard a weird noise. 
couldn't really work out what it was. I'm getting like a proper gust coming up from that thing where you were spraying them at yeah. the door. I'm not, I'm not surprised. The door's like, I can show you the door when we leave, but it's uh, the bottom half of it's solid wood and then it's got like um, bars, you know, like if you imagine like a jail door, mm-hmm. it's got like bars on the door. So if it's windy, the wind will go straight through there and straight up here because it's got nowhere else to go. Come on, we've come a long way to see you. We've seen nothing yet to tonight that makes us think that there's anybody here in the castle. Can you give us some kind of proof? Could you knock on the box that Gary sat on? Could you make some kind of a noise on the metal bars on the floor? Because the chances are that that's where you went to die. You were thrown down that hole and then just left to rot. And that's an awful thing to happen to anybody and, and I'm sure that that's the reason why you're still here. Can you, can you make some kind of a noise or do something? hard to describe because like obviously your mind plays tricks on you anyway yeah. but it's just like I'm more horrified by the fact that there's them how real are them how do you know that they weren't well you, you don't know I mean they could have been added at any time but the, it's said that what this room was used for is and I have no reason to doubt that that's what this room is used for but they would take the, pris- the prisoners worth torturing to the dungeon and torture them and, and do horrible things to them. And they just lock the kids in here, children, um, and they chain them up. And then when the room got a bit full, whoever had been here the longest, they'd break their arms and knife and chuck them down that hole and just leave them. But often there'd be like a mound of bodies in there already dead. Mm-hmm. So what, what, they would, what was that? Was that your thought? Yeah, um, but what they do is that uh, there'd be bodies down there already dead, so they'd do what they could to survive, like eat them and that eating flesh of the dead and drinking any kind of juice that came out of them, whatever the hell that was, in order just to try and stay alive that little bit longer. Even though they knew ultimately it was a waste of time. Mm. But it was a horrible time. Horrible time. And there's a real skeleton down there now. Mm. That's me again. Yeah, right. we'll, uh, we'll head back. As we leave the yet, I almost wish we'd had more time. I thought I saw a shadowy figure walk past the doorway of the tiny dungeon, and I am convinced that's what I saw. But Harvey didn't say it, so there's no way of corroborating it, and time is against us, so I've had no choice but just to dismiss it as my imagination. As you'll have heard, Harvey didn't initially feel comfortable in here, We both seem to be hearing strange noises, but nothing conclusive, which is very much the story of our night. When we arrived in the chapel, the others were already there, 
I sat down next to John and asked how they'd gotten on in the torture chamber. They'd had much the same as us, bangs and whispers from somewhere in the room with them that they couldn't quite pinpoint, and it wouldn't manifest itself into anything more. It seemed fateful to me that we would finish our investigation in the chapel, just as we'd done a decade earlier, when Bob would tell Tom and I about Eric, the spectral little boy who showed us all something incredible. What I wouldn't give for something of that scale in our final 30 minutes. We sat in the pews. Graham asked aloud. He asked for Eleanor to make herself known. Eleanor is the name they've picked up on during investigations as being the young girl buried beneath the floor here. Come on. I know it's different. I know it's only a small group. But, you know, you've got to realise that we... We've got to have people in here as well so they can see exactly what's going on. And that's all we want you to do is just come forward and just say what you can do. As I said before, if there's people stopping you, we'd love to know why or what they're trying to hide. I mean, we, we don't get angry or frustrated. All we're trying to do, thank you, all we're trying to do is to get to know you, get to know exactly what's going on. That was right beside John, that one, isn't John? Yeah. We all heard a loud bang. It came from near John, and he felt it. Try as we might, it didn't materialise into anything. I was cold, tired, and mentally drained. But I felt like the castle might just have something in store for us, before we'd have to bid this amazing fortress farewell. Come on. See if you can make that noise again. Bang the bench again. Drop something in John's hand. Come on. And that was it. Our investigation was over. It was a little after 4am and we bid farewell to Graham and Jill and thanked them for taking so much good care of us tonight. We stepped out of Chillingham Castle and out into the early morning darkness. After the best part of six hours without seeing the outside world, we all took a moment to look to the heavens and admire the unbelievably clear night sky. The sky was a blanket of stars. It was the kind of clear starry night you can only get out in the countryside, where the sky hasn't been polluted by streetlights. We were all keen to get out of the cold and get home to our beds, so we were shortly back at Tom's car. He unlocked it as we approached, but we couldn't get in. All four doors and the boot were frozen shut. After what seemed like an eternity, but in reality was probably only a minute or so of gentle coaxing, the doors were open and we all eagerly climbed inside. I was so cold that my teeth were chattering. In absolute contrast to the journey to the castle, I was glad of the close proximity of Rich and Harvey either side of me in the back, as their body heat was a godsend. We headed out through the east gate, through the quiet village of Chatton, and then joined the A1. We reflected on the investigation, talking of our own personal highs and lows, disappointments and inexplicable occurrences. It was 30 minutes into our journey before we saw another car, although 4.30am on a Sunday morning isn't exactly peak travel time for normal people. As we chatted I noticed Harvey had fallen asleep. 
I suggested that I put some music on. Tom asked for some Queen. We discussed our favourite Queen songs. Not because we're all passionate Queen fans, but because we had to have something to talk about to keep us awake. And more importantly, keep Tom awake as he safely drove us south. Back to the lure of our nice warm homes and our nice warm beds. My body was absolutely crying out for sleep. Flash, said John, very matter-of-factly, like it wasn't conceivable that any other Queen song could possibly be better. Harvey was snoring. The others commented on how well he'd fit in with the group, and that I'd chosen wisely in our new recruit. Back on the subject of the paranormal, I told them of the investigations that I had lined up for the rest of the year, some very exciting locations. Rich made a comment which made me think that it might be possible that he'd perhaps not quite completed his final investigation, and maybe, just maybe, he'd be tempted to dust off his torch and camera and join us as we enter the darkness once again. John had been very quiet. I wonder if he dozed off. I couldn't see his face as he was sat in the passenger seat. Flash came on. He came to life, singing along, bobbing his head and singing along to every word. After a number of stops where Tom dropped other people off, I was the last dropped off, but I was finally home. It was 5.45 in the morning and I thanked him and wished him good night. It was 6am when I finally got to bed, well aware that my dogs, Holly and Indy, would no doubt have me awake in a couple of short hours for walkies. I was exhausted, exhilarated, and with my head full of questions that Chillingham Castle had presented to me, for which there were no answers. Thank you for joining me for this special episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. And this will be the first of many, as I'll aim to put out a special Patreon episode at least once a month. If you're not a Patreon supporter, and you're listening to this in the future when I've released it to everybody, you could get access to these bonus podcasts three months earlier by becoming a Patreon supporter for only £3 a month. Not only will you get access to episodes of this nature, but you'll also get early access to all the weekly podcasts. For more information, check out the podcast description or you can head over to the website at www.how-haunted.com. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod, or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod, where you'll see photos galore relating to Chillingham Castle, including the photos from our investigation. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com, or you can email me directly at Rob at how-haunted.com Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you aren't a fan of Patreon or perhaps would like to make a one-off donation at the podcast why not buy me a coffee? All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps other people to find how haunted. I have a copy of my book Ghosts of Edinburgh up for grabs. If you'd like to enter, all you need to do is leave How Haunted a podcast review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. Then drop me an email at rob at how-haunted.com to let me know. The competition will end on Halloween 2022 
and the winner will be announced on Twitter and the first podcast episode after the closing date. Thank you so much for accompanying me on this very special paranormal adventure. Stay safe, and join me next time when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? Thank you.